0: Hey Rachel, do you know what's up with Mikhail Rasputin these days?
1: You mean Colossus and Magic's big brother? I think he's still stuck in the Dark Zone, Miles.
0: The Dark Zone? Is that the reality where he married a princess?
1: Oh no no no, that's the Void, where he got trapped when he was still a cosmonaut after the Soviet government faked his death in an explosion.
0: But the X-Men got him out, right?
1: Yeah, but not until after he'd accidentally killed his wife and wiped out at least one major urban center, which kind of became a theme with him. You know, good intentions and all that.
0: Huh. But that was before he accidentally infected Ilyana with a legacy virus via a time loop.
1: Right. That didn't happen until way later in the Truth or Death miniseries.
0: Oh. Okay, so the Dark Zone is the dimension where he went to turn the Morlocks into a terrorist group.
1: No, that's the Hill. The Dark Zone is where he ended up after he allied with Mr. Sinister to try to kill all the Rasputins.
0: Why would they? do that? And and isn't Rasputin a really common last name in Russia? That's like setting out to kill everyone with the last name Smith.
1: Well, in the 616, apparently there's only one Rasputin bloodline, and it goes straight back to the mad monk himself, Grigory Efimovich Rasputin.
0: I know I'm going to regret asking this, but how does Sinister tie in?
1: Well, he was trying to set things up so there'd be only one Rasputin left, at which point apparently the original would reincarnate. What?! (laughs) Rachel Edidin and
0: I'm Miles Stokes, and
1: we are here to explain the X-Men
0: because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to the nineteenth episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera.
0: So last week, we talked about Dracula. In fact, we, we sure did. We talked about many Draculas. Draculas of all flavors and varieties. So
1: many Draculas.
0: This week, we're actually going to continue doing some sort of eldritch sorcery stuff as we talk about magic. Iliana Rasputin.
1: That's magic with a K. There's also going to be a lot of magic with a C in here. We'll do our best to disambiguate when necessary.
0: Okay, so Ilyana Rasputin. So we've seen her before. She's Colossus's little sister, right?
1: Right. She's the adorable, stereotypically Russian six-year-old with the ponytails. She's running around with the X-Men these days.
0: Yeah, and her first appearance was actually in Giant Size X-Men number one, where she was the little girl about to get hit by one of Russia's many runaway tractors. I don't
1: think she even had a name at that point.
0: Nah, she was just Tractor bait.
1: Is that what Eliana means?
0: That's a direct translation. Rush is kind of (laughs) weird. Anyway, so yeah, she's been brought here. I think she was actually brought here by Arcade as a hostage, as I recall. She
1: was, yeah, and then she just sort of stuck around. Presumably her parents know where she is at this point. I don't know, do they?
0: It's really hard to say. I mean, this is Professor Xavier. He's really not good at letting people know what's going on.
1: But the point is, though, that she's basically been running around with the X-Men, being their adorable baby sidekick, and they are at this point on Magneto's weird island base, which they've taken over following the events of X-Men 150 and are using as their base of operations since the mansion got destroyed.
0: Okay, so we keep talking about this island base. Like, I'd forgotten about how long the X-Men were living on this thing. Can we get a name here? What do we want to call this thing? I'm going to vote Octopus Heim and thus it is canonical, they are now hanging out in Octopusheim.
1: All right, so this is an island covered in old Atlantean ruins, and on the team right now hanging out is basically the same crew as in 159 when they went to fight Dracula. We've got Storm, Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Sprite, Kitty Pride currently, and Eliana as their cute sidekick.
0: Yeah, and uh, Cyclops, he's uh, presumably off just having sort of awkward family bonding time with his space pirate dad, Corsair, and also uh, Alex, his brother, Havoc, and Lorna Dane, Polaris. Who are
1: still desperately and futilely trying to have a normal life.
0: It's really hard to try to have a normal life when your space pirate dad's hanging out in the living room drinking all your beer.
1: Yeah, good luck with that,
0: guys. Yeah, we've mentioned that at the beginning of most stories, we have sort of a reset to our default, and that's, you know, them hanging out in the danger room, the sort of new Atlantean danger room in Octopusheim.
1: But this time, they're being watched by someone sinister, but not capital S sinister, this is someone else.
0: Yeah, yeah, Mr. Sinister won't show up for a while. Honestly, he's a way better villain than this guy, but what can you do?
1: This guy specifically is Belasco, and we'll get to him in a moment, but what he's here to do specifically is to lure little... Ilyana away from the danger room.
0: And into a weird, like, sort of circle of light, which is just hanging out in Octopusheim, Ilyana goes wandering off...
1: And Kitty goes after her and is shortly thereafter teleported via something that she's going to term a stepping disk in direct homage to Larry Niven, because Kitty Pride is a huge nerd.
0: Yeah, I love all like the sort of geeky pop culture references that uh, Claremont throws into X Men in this period. It's wonderful. And
1: there's a lot. There's a lot specifically in the stuff we're going to be covering today too. But um, the Niven one is is a running thing, and these are actually they're going to keep calling these stepping disks basically forever.
0: So where do Kitty and Eliana end up?
1: They end up in limbo. But not that limbo. My first thought with limbo is, you know, Catholic afterlife limbo. It's not that one.
0: And it's also not the limbo that we talked about a couple episodes ago that Marcus and Immortus kidnapped Captain Marvel to and did some really not okay stuff.
1: This is specifically a limbo that's known as Other Place. It's a sort of a hell dimension. Uh, It's fundamentally demonic, although it's shaped somewhat by the will and nature of whoever's in charge. Currently, that's a dude named Belasco who we'll be meeting shortly. One of the things that's important to know about this limbo going in is that time works differently here.
0: Sometimes you'll go through a stepping disk and all of a sudden you'll be in the past or the future or just a different geographic place.
1: Occasionally there are clear time loops, but it also starts to branch. I guess one way to think of it is as a self-contained multiverse. Like it's all of the different timelines are happening in the same universe, in the same dimension.
0: Now the difference between this and the actual Marvel multiverse is this is actually supposed to be confusing as opposed to just being inherently confusing and uh, supposed to make sense.
1: Right. These aren't continuity errors. They're basically a side effect of the weird nature of the place and the weird nature of the passage of time there. Um, The passage of linear and subjective time is pretty funky as well. And that's where Kitty ends up.
0: Yeah, so she encounters Nightcrawler. and She's like, oh, hey, Nightcrawler, everything's okay, except everything is totally not okay, because this is not the Kurt Wagner that she knows and loves.
1: Yeah, this is one of the many evil alternate kind of rapey Nightcrawlers, which seems to be kind of a running trend with evil alternate versions of him. I guess that's sort of the official dark side of the friendly swashbuckler persona.
0: I guess so. But yeah, she quickly flees as she realizes, something is up here. This is not the Nightcrawler I saw like four seconds ago.
1: And she ends up in the throne room of... Belasco. So let's talk about Belasco.
0: Okay, so Belasco is, well, I'm not going to say he's a historical figure, but he showed up before he showed up in X-Men, actually, in Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. You know, like uh, Inferno, Paradiso, that sort of thing.
1: At this point, he's been part of the Marvel Universe for a few months. He made his first appearance in Khazar the Savage number 11 in a story that ended with him trapped in limbo by Kezar, and that's where he still is at this point.
0: Yeah, so his deal, he's uh, a demon sorcerer, basically, you know, complete with little horns, red skin, a tail. He's got this great supervillain outfit for very regal and demonic. So he gets his power from the Elder Gods slash Outer Gods. You may know this term from the Lovecraft mythos, and uh, kind of the same thing as near as I can tell. They're
1: enormous, they're evil, they're going to come devour reality.
0: Yeah, so he's got two main goals, one of which is to sort of sick the Elder Gods on Earth to let them into our main reality.
1: And the other is to get his own bright red ass out of limbo. He at this point
0: has Ilyana, and he's got Kitty, And he gives Kitty, or he gives Ilyana, rather, this, like, little creepy pendant to play with.
1: At this point, he's being super nice to Ilyana. He's setting himself up as her friend, and he's doing this very deeply creepy grooming thing, setting himself up as her friend and a good guy and the person who she can really trust, who loves her. And he's mostly doing this because he wants to use her later to accomplish, again, those two goals.
0: Now, also what he's doing as he kidnaps Kitty is he puts her in this sort of crystal prison thing, and then he just freaking pulls her skeleton out with magic!
1: It is super gross, but it's... It's also super cool.
0: It's like, hey, here's your skeleton. This is what you look like on the inside. You're made of bones. They're over here. Velasco
1: is metal as hell.
0: He's actually got some hidden cameras and he's just making album covers. Like that's the entire reason he does what he does.
1: Limpo is actually kind of the metal album cover dimension.
0: Um, It also kind of reminded me of the silly skeleton that Vincent Price sticks on people in the house on Haunted Hill
1: oh my god does limbo have a merjo action
0: uh, so let's talk about a merger this is totally irrelevant but it's awesome
1: William Castle who directed the original house on haunted hill was a former carnival barker who was all about spectacle and he was specifically all about spectacle with really just amazingly dubious contexts and names um, in a movie called the tingler he actually wired uh, theater seats to mildly electrocute patrons
0: what could possibly go wrong with that plan right
1: um, he would do things like hire ambulances to hang out outside theaters where his movies were showing just in case someone had a heart attack um, <laughs> and a and was basically a trapdoor that a skeleton popped out of at a key moment in The House on Haunted Hill, which is a fantastic... Oh, God, I love Vincent Price so much. Vincent Price is my Belasco, actually.
0: Oh, he would be a really good Belasco. He'd actually make Belasco way cooler than he is in the comic.
1: He would lend him a degree of gravitas that he lacks, because Vincent Price's mutant power is making anything sound briefly credible.
0: Right, so uh, Belasco has Iliana captured, and he's being all all, all nice to her in his clearly creepy way. He's got Kitty captured.
1: We mentioned the alternate version of Nightcrawler that Kitty runs into. We're going to see all Almost all of the X Men in sort of alternate twisted limbo versions across this issue, Kitty is the only exception to that. We're not going to see her Limbo version until actually years later.
0: But for now, we are cutting to the other X-Men and seeing what's up with them. So Nightcrawler encounters this other dark Nightcrawler, and they fight. And seeing Nightcrawler fight Nightcrawler is always cool, even when it's super creepy like this.
1: It's unclear what's going on at this point, but he ends up killing evil Nightcrawler and taking his place and using that to double-cross Belasco later.
0: Or at least knocking him unconscious. It's it's sort of ambiguous.
1: Colossus and Wolverine are pretty much together. Uh, They encounter their corpses. Their alternate Limbo versions are just straight-up dead. And they are ambushed by a demon named, I think, Sim. His name is spelled S-apostrophe-Y-M. So I, there, are, there are options.
0: I, I always called him Sim, so I'm going to say let's go with that. Maybe we'll get Claremont in here at some point and he can tell us Sim. for sure.
1: Okay, so let's talk about Sim because Sim is going to be very important and he's going to stay very important for a very long time.
0: Way longer than you'd think for a big cartoony purple guy who's chomping a cigar, uh, which he is, by the way, in every single time he appears.
1: Yeah, Sim is really cartoonish. Again, I mentioned in context of that, metal album covers that Limbo's got sort of a mix of, of dark hell imagery and then this weird cartooniness. And in Sim's case, his cartooniness is actively creepy. I mean, the first time we see him, it's clear that he's the one who killed both Colossus and Wolverine or the alternate versions of them that were in Limbo before. And he pretty nearly takes out the main versions He's not just really mean, he's really actively cruel.
0: Yeah, in a way, I mean, you figure uh, Ilyana is sort of the target of this entire mystical kidnapping operation. And so Sim is kind of a perfect antagonist in that he's a big, scary cartoon. Like, if you were a little kid, that's kind of what you're going to be afraid of.
1: And he's a character who's going to stay very closely linked to Ilyana in the future, even more so than Belasco.
0: In the meantime, Storm is sort of on her own.
1: She's teleported to somewhere else in Limbo.
0: She's sort of rescued by a mysterious hooded benefactor. She finds clothing in her side, and she's wondering what's going on, but she figures, you know, hey, I can, I can figure out the details later. For right now, I gotta see if my friends are okay. I gotta see if this kid's okay.
1: Now, you mentioned a mysterious hooded figure. We've actually seen that one before. They showed up and teleported Colossus and Wolverine to Belasco's throne room, where Nightcrawler, Kitty, and Iliana already were. We still don't know who it is yet.
0: But we do find out pretty quickly... It's Storm. And here's where we start to find out a little bit of what happened as far as why there's this second set of X-Men here.
1: Now, this Storm is much older. And she's part of a group of X-Men that jumped into limbo after Iliana, And this group of X-Men was entirely corrupted or killed because, again, time works differently in Limbo. She's basically waited for them to come in and is now sort of trying to help them get out safely.
0: Right. She doesn't want what happened to the X-Men that she came in with to happen to this other group of X-Men. She wants to save them if she can.
1: So, she starts to teleport the X-Men back home, but Belasco makes a grab for Eliana, and he's able to pull her away, and the X-Men end up back in Octopus Heim without her.
0: Quick aside here. We mentioned Storm teleporting people around. Not typically Storm's uh, usual bag. Her elemental powers, as she's gotten older and weaker, she's kind of lost her connection with but she at this point is an amazingly powerful sorceress
1: we're gonna find out more about that later what you need to know for now is that she's got enough power to get these guys back home she's their glinda the good witch Ilyana, however is apparently lost until she teleports in behind them alive but seven years older
0: all of a sudden it's like you know i was six years old now i'm what 13 years old
1: all we know at the end of this is that again Ilyana's older she's been through some shit that she's not really going to talk about and they're all really happy to have her back But this single issue sets up about 20 years' worth of story.
0: If not more, I mean, we're really still seeing the echoes of this. Everything the X-Men do mystically that's not the gem of Siderak is because of what happened here.
1: We mentioned the Inferno crossover last episode. This is the groundwork for Inferno. The New Mutants are also going to be showing up in the Marvel Universe pretty soon, and a lot of their stories are going to revolve around Limbo. Um, and again, Eliana's is going to be joining that team eventually. But most immediately, it sets up a four-issue limited series that explores exactly what happened in those seven subjective years between when they lost Eliana and Limbo and when she reappeared.
0: Now, I'd like to point out, the Magic miniseries, that time period that you just described, Rachel, that takes place between two panels in Uncanny X-Men number 160.
1: And we know that something happened to her in Limbo, and it was bad, but it doesn't really get explored until the Magic miniseries.
0: Right. Now, this isn't the first X-Men miniseries. We also had a Wolverine one a little while before that we're going to cover at some point, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, that is the Chris Claremont Frank Miller Wolverine series, and it is iconic and classic.
0: Wolverine cuts up ninjas. What more do you want? But this miniseries, I hadn't read it since I was much, much younger it really, really holds up. Like, I was kind of blown away by how freaking good this series is.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. One of the things that makes it so good is that it uses the serial form to remarkable effect. It's a four-issue miniseries, A lot of the time that sort of feels like a story broken up into parts by necessity. In this one, each of the issues is very much its own thematic arc.
0: Okay, so creative teams. Uh, This is Claremont. Now, at this point, I think we've mentioned before, but Claremont is writing literally everything that's directly X-Men related. Every spin-off, every miniseries, everything. And when
1: the Magic miniseries comes out, that means it's the main X-Men, it's the New Mutants, which is an ongoing series that's going on at that point. He's just finished the Wolverine miniseries. Is there any any other titles running then?
0: Uh, There may be. I'm sure we're missing something. I'm sure our listeners will be kind enough to uh, let us know what we're forgetting.
1: He's got at least two ongoings going right now.
0: John Bouchama is doing the pencils on this, Tom Palmer, the finishes, which is to say inking, presumably. Art's really good. It really fits the story. It's different than what's going on in X-Men, but it's great.
1: Something that is sort of a perennial sticking point for me in comics is the way preteen and teen girls are drawn. And you see a lot of sort of hypersexualization of of like, 13-year-olds, but also just a lot of really weirdly age asynchronous art
0: these days pixie is often depicted as way older and more sexual than she should be
1: scotty young is one of the few artists who didn't do that with her but it's been a consistent problem but i mean that was even a trend in comics at this point and something you see with kitty in some of her appearances at this time period she's supposed to be 13 or 14 this miniseries i think is notable because it's got a kid growing up from age 6 to 13 and over that arc she looks 6 to 13 she believably ages over the course of the miniseries. And again, this is the, the other thing is that she's, she's a kid who looks like a kid initially. A lot of comics artists are less proficient at because being able to draw kids well and realistically isn't something that there's generally a huge call to do. So it doesn't tend to be a specialty. And in this, having a character realistically age that much, having their appearance be really contiguous and recognizable across that... And having them look the ages they are is frustratingly rare, but done well enough here to be worth calling out as a strong point of the series.
0: Totally. And it goes the other way in this series, too, because we see a much, much older Storm. And yeah, I'll buy that that's what Storm looks like when she's decades older. Totally.
1: So let's go into what happens in the actual series. We've got this first issue, Little Girl Lost.
0: Yeah, and I love the the titles for these issues because they they really fit and they're also so very Claremont comic booky. Oh yeah,
1: I'm going to jump back and point out that X-Men 160 also has one of my favorite titles, which is Shoots and Ladders, which is such a good metaphor for the weird causality and travel in Limbo.
0: So basically we pick up right after the X-Men lose their grip on Ilyana.
1: Uh, So Belasco's got her in Limbo. We find out very quickly that what he wants to do is use her to make something called a bloodstone amulet. They'll have these five bloodstones. He'll develop it over years. When it's finished, it'll give him the power he needs both to get out of limbo and to open a portal for the Elder Gods to come rampage.
0: Now, bloodstones, what they are, they basically represent the progressive corruption of a soul. And that's part of why he wanted Ilyana is because she's a very pure soul, which is, I guess, especially you can get a lot of corruption in there. There's a lot of room for corruption.
1: And to make the first bloodstone, he literally pulls out and twists a chunk of Ilyana's soul. That moment is going to define the rest of the series and the character for the next 20-odd years.
0: It's really hard to overemphasize how important this is for everything that's going to happen to magic and the whole mystical side of the X-Books forever, basically.
1: Even with that, he's still her best friend. He's nice to her. He says he loves her. He gives her pretty things. He tells her she's special. So she has mixed feelings when Storm and a character named Kat show up to steal her away.
0: So Storm is the Storm we mentioned, the sort of older sorceress.
1: And Kat is, at last, Kitty Pride's limbo analog. She's really fucked up.
0: She's sort of got this ninja warrior thing going on, which, you know, we'll, we'll see more of that later on in the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries. And a deeply
1: improbable costume.
0: The art's great. Kat's costume is not it's slit basically up to her ribs on the sides. Oh,
1: it's slit up to roughly her armpits.
0: Yeah. And she's got like a bunch of ninja stars on her arms. Which It's just like a shoulder mounted like, uh... loincloth.
1: I don't even, I, I don't even know how to describe it properly. It's, it's fairly amazing, but it works for just a completely fucked up twisted version of her who isn't very good at tailoring.
0: But yeah, so they, they steal her away from Belasco and uh, take her to as much safety as you can take someone to in limbo.
1: And that's Storm Sanctum. So this storm you'll remember is a really powerful sorcerer. And what we learn over the course of Ileana's time with Storm, is that Storm was Belasco's first apprentice here. He took her, he tried to train her, she learned a lot of dark magic from him, and she eventually rebelled against him and tried to set up sort of a quiet, good place in the middle of the seething corruption of Limbo.
0: So she's got this kind of garden grove place. It's, It's really beautiful. And the center of it is this great big oak tree, which she grew from a single acorn that she created using her magic. This was like sort of the first evidence of her magic being used for good.
1: The creation of that acorn is a really significant point. And it's one that we're going to be returning to throughout the series as Liana tries and fails to do the same thing.
0: So she uh, initially tries to get into Ilyana's head and just sever the link between her and Belasco.
1: She can't do that. There's something else in Ilyana's head that's part of Ilyana now permanently that's this sort of twisted demon version of her who will come back later, um, be called the Dark Child, not to be confused with the 90s image character of the same name but spelled with a Y.
0: And so she comes out just like defeated. She straight up is defeated in her, her goal here. So she starts talking to Kat about plan B and Kat says, well, let's just kill her. We know know the risks if Belasco is able to corrupt her. We know what's going to happen. Better she doesn't have to suffer and get to that point.
1: Storm refuses. Storm decides that she is going to train Ilyana, and she's going to teach her to resist the corruption and take hold of her own destiny. That theme, that sort of nature versus nurture, how inherent and defining is corruption, is going to persist through the rest of the miniseries and really continue to define the character permanently.
0: Storm goes ahead and she basically starts training Ilyana as her apprentice, as another sorceress.
1: And so passes a year.
0: Like, yeah, during this one montage, it is a full year. And part of that is that, you know, time is screwed up in limbo. But part of it is that Storm is willing to sacrifice a year of Ilyana's life and a year of hers because she thinks this is so important. It's actually really cool. They astrally project during this. And I want to talk about how the, the Claremont's writing here. You know, I believe that Ilyana is a six-year-old girl at this point.
1: Yeah, Ilyana narrates the series. And having a kid as a narrator is a risky move. But it works and plays off to remarkable effect.
0: So like when they first start projecting astrally, we see Eliana's narration. My eyes are still shut, but I can see perfectly. The fire is everywhere. The garden alive with glittering lights and colors. It's so beautiful. I want to cry. And when I do, my tears are diamonds. We know this isn't going to end well. So just seeing that kind of innocence, knowing roughly what's going to happen... It's hard. It's actually genuinely really sad.
1: Yeah, Magic is not a happy miniseries and not a happy character. Ilyana survives, but... She's not a character who gets a happy ending, and she's not ever going to be. Which brings us to issue two, Cold Iron Hot Blood. So if issue one is all about her time with Storm, issue two is about Kat.
0: So it's unclear what gives her the change of heart, but Kat decides that she's not going to kill Iliana, Instead, she's just going to help her escape from limbo.
1: Oh man, and you mentioned sort of the the really sad gradual corruption and innocence lost thing. The opening narration of this issue a year ago when I was six and still a child.
0: Oh man, Iliana. dude. Right.
1: Cat effectively kidnaps Eliana. It's like, okay, well Storm can teach you some. I'm gonna teach you how to stab things. Cat in this is ruthless. Pretty ninja. Can we use ninja as an adjective? I'm gonna use ninja as oh, an absolutely. adjective here. Yeah. She's an incredibly effective hunter. We find out it's because Belasco has magically twisted her. She's actually effectively part cat at this point. She unique among the surviving twisted X-Men in limbo has really actively and bitterly rejected her previous identity.
0: And I think bitter is definitely the operative word there. And that's part of what motivates her to just say, screw this, I know what you're trying to do, Storm. The only thing we can do is just get Ilyana out of here. Nothing good can ever come of this place.
1: And her plan is... To train Ilyana to the point where she can effectively sneak through Belasco's castle. Unlike Storm, whose mutant powers have waned over time in Limbo, cats have gotten more powerful, and she thinks that if she can get to Belasco's throne room, she can actually phase the two of them back through into the main reality.
0: The Belasco's throne room, or I guess there's this balcony right outside it, is sort of a weak spot between the two worlds.
1: Now, we're two issues into a four-issue miniseries, so you can probably guess how well that's gonna go.
0: Nightcrawler ambushes them when they show up at the castle, and they fight and they fight, and god damn, if Cat doesn't kill him in like a really brutal disturbing fashion. Yeah,
1: she phases him partway into a floor, crushing one of his legs and then kills him.
0: Just runs him through with a sword after that. It's it's actually pretty graphic.
1: And then Belasco shows up and makes very, very short work of cat. He decides, okay, obviously I didn't take it far enough, and just turns her into a cat monster, at which point she eats Nightcrawler's corpse, and so ends the second issue of Magic. Let's just say that again.
0: She eats Nightcrawler's corpse. This is some seriously dark shit. I mean, Uncanny X-Men can get dark, but goddamn Magic mini-series.
1: I want to go back to thematic notes in this issue, because something that we both noticed when we were going through this is how centered it is around Ileana's relationships. You know, Belasco's the one who kidnaps her, but the defining relationships she has in this are very much with older women, with Storm and then with Kat. For me, that's something that really defines Chris Claremont's run of X-Men. I know he wasn't the first superhero writer to do this, because it's a defining trait of Golden Age Wonder Woman, but his run on X-Men was really the first superhero comic that I read that wasn't specifically in, you know, all-female, girl-focused book that was still propelled and defined in large part and spent a lot of time focusing on relationships between women and between female characters, either mentoring or just friendship.
0: X-Men was really the first book, or the X-Men line, I should say, was the first line I read superhero-wise, you know, that wasn't just watching Super Friends every Saturday morning. And so that was normal for me. Like, that's how a super group worked, and that's freaking huge, because I know I'm far from the only one who was influenced that way.
1: And I want to distinguish that, too, from the Bechtel test, which comes up as sort of a bare minimum test. This is uh, you know, two women who have a conversation about something other than the male protagonist it's not just that it's not just that there are multiple women who have their own stories it's specifically that the women in Claremont's X-Men like each other they value each other. They're friends. They have relationships that are defined by more than rivalry. Those relationships are given a lot of time and a lot of space and a lot of emphasis.
0: What I also like is that it's not all just happy-go-lucky, everything is perfect. This stuff is really nuanced. I mean, you look at Ilyana and Kat. You look at, geez, Carol Danvers and Rogue. I mean, over the years, they go in so many different directions with each other. Well,
1: and Storm and Kitty in the main timeline, I think, are, are one of my favorites. That This mentoring but kind of surrogate parenty relationship and the way it sort of pushes and pulls as each of them kind of develops and explores her own identity. And they're not one-dimensional. Like, not only are the characters really varied, but their relationships with each other are. That's something that, you know, we talk about Chris Claremont and female-centric stories and strong female characters, and those come up a lot in discussions of his work. It's the relationships, specifically, that, for me, define his run as really progressive, doing something significant and, unfortunately, exceptional with the way female characters show up in comics. And that's, that's, again, something that I think really runs strong throughout the Magic miniseries.
0: It's strange, because Claremont is writing one of the most successful superhero books out there at this point. I wish that had influenced things more. Modern comics, you don't see that as much as I would like to see it.
1: You see it a lot in books like Birds of Prey, which are sort of fundamentally homosocial books, where you've got The Lady Team. You don't see it as much elsewhere. I wish you saw more of it.
0: You know it was actually awesome for that? I wasn't a huge fan of the series itself, but the recent Uncanny X-Force that was uh, an almost entirely female team with like Psylocke and Spiral and stuff, I think that did that well.
1: Yeah, it really did.
0: Let's get to number three, which is called Soul Quest. And what I like about Soul Quest is that it, the title's done in sort of a very ElfQuest-y font. It's clear Claremont loves ElfQuest; like it keeps freaking coming up.
1: Yeah, we've seen it a couple times. Kitty's got an ElfQuest T-shirt. She runs around in. Uh, there's a straight-up quest fairy that appears in the Kitty's Fairy Tale issue,
0: calling everybody big things and stuff.
1: Which sort of makes sense since we know she's an quest fan. At this point, Ilana is Belasco's apprentice again.
0: She's doing some really not okay stuff with her magic a lot of the narration talks about how she knows what she's doing is wrong, but she wants to keep doing it, and it's really this duality, this push-pull thing that's going on inside her.
1: Yeah, she's at a point where she knows that to get free she's gonna have to get as much power as she can. She's gonna have to learn from this. She's doing what she has to do, but there's still enough of her left that she knows that it's not right, and it's still really messing with her.
0: It's also very clear that it's not just something she's doing reluctantly. There's a real pull. She really is starting to enjoy what she's doing, to really feel like that's who she is.
1: And it's at this point that we see her make her first attempt at creating an acorn talked about that as storm sort of defining moment of reclaiming herself
0: now this is at a time when Ilyana really feels like she needs to reclaim herself she's just struck out at cat who like we said earlier is now this kind of feline monster who's trying to connect to her trying to say her name iliana and she zaps her and cat runs away and iliana's narration is like yeah i know that this time it's for good so she's feeling really low
1: and this is going to be the act that redeems her, and she casts light magic the way Storm taught her specifically, and she talks about how she uses Storm's configuration, not Pelasco's, and she tries to create an acorn, and she fails.
0: Yeah, it sort of, like, explodes in this black spatter of blood that's really just kind of gross and ultimately very sad, knowing what that represents.
1: So Storm shows up in a vision at this point, promises to come and save her, but before anything else can happen, Uyan is, what, like, 11 at this point or so? We all know what happens to mutant kids around puberty.
0: So her mutant power kicks in, and this is one of the stranger mutant powers in the entire Marvel universe, because it's so specific.
1: It's directly tied to Limbo. She can create and control magical stepping discs.
0: Which are an inherently Limbo thing. Like, if you're using a stepping disc, you're going through Limbo, or from one part of Limbo to another.
1: Which raises the question of how much of the power that she ended up with is what she would have gotten anyway, and how much of it has been sort of tainted or changed by her time in Limbo. I don't know if that's something they really ever go into.
0: I guess as we read more, we'll we'll find out if that ever shows up again so she's able to move them around and she's like well i'm getting the hell out of here
1: but she still hasn't quite figured out how they work yet so she's just kind of teleporting at random uh she intersects briefly with new mutants 14 which is happening at the same time
0: the new mutants there who were xavier's younger team who will be talking a lot about going forward are like wait that's iliana but she's younger how does this make sense and then iliana's gone again and they're presumably very very confused
1: she also teleports back in time and sees storm and belasco's final confrontation when storm was leaving belasco
0: now this is a really badass fight. Storm is there in like this sort of demony armor with a sword and the mohawk. It's, that I d- it's
1: not really armor; it's sort of more like demony duct tape.
0: Okay, well, to be fair, it at least does fit the aesthetic we've seen in Limbo so far.
1: Yeah, it's the Limbo version of Punk Storm, who's also recently made her first appearance in the comics. She's so cool. She is. God, I have such a crush on Storm.
0: It's hard not to. I mean, geez, I have my whole life, basically. Although I also kind of want a beer. It's both of those things. Yeah, so it's this really badass fight of her up against Belasco, and it's clear that this was her big rebellion years and years and years ago, probably shortly after the X-Men first got there.
1: What it sort of predicts is what then Ilyana teleports into in the present, which is Storm showing up to take on Belasco, except that this time, Storm gets jumped by the now totally feral Cat. To get her off Storm, Ilyana kills Cat.
0: It's this big snap as Ilyana snaps her friend's neck and kills her.
1: And thus ends issue three. This is an event horizon. Iliana has seen the way Limbo has corrupted and damaged and destroyed her friends and brother. This is the first time that she has actually actively played a role in that. And that's going to tie closely into issue four, Darkchild.
0: And this goes right into Belasco saying, hey, good job killing cat." Now let's kill Storm, make that third bloodstone, and use Storm as a sacrifice to help bring the Elder Gods through.
1: Ilyana is understandably reticent. Storm basically pulls an Obi-Wan wink and smile, and then Ilyana straight up stabs her.
0: Part of why she does this, part of what happens, is that when Storm dies, as one might expect, her powers all just burst outside of her. Now, not the sorceress powers we've seen in this miniseries, but the ones that gave her her codename. This giant, weathery, doom-hurricane thing hits Belasco's castle and just starts smashing it. You know, rocks are falling on demons and walls are falling down. And Ilyana creates a stepping disc and gets the hell out of there with Storm's body.
1: And goes and buries her in her grove. If issue one is Storm, issue two is Cat, issue three is Belasco, issue four... Is Ilyana.
0: Ilyana herself on her own.
1: Uh, she goes to Storm's Grove, buries her, is confronted by sort of ghoulish versions of the dead X-Men. It's never quite clear whether they're real or her imagination or constructions of Blasco. She tries to get away from them.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very Silent Hill in that regard. You know, is, is what she's seeing real or is Limbo just using sort of her fears and memories and pulling out of its own demonic nature to make that
1: happen? Oh man, Limbo is actually super Silent Hill when you think about it, the way it shapes itself around specific people
0: also the labyrinth from wraith the oblivion but now we're starting to get really obscure
1: i think we just nerd leveled up
0: yes we win after this she teleports to earth the real world russia to her parents and she's like holy crap i could have gotten out of here at any time
1: except no time has passed in the real world and so her parents she shows up and she talks to her parents and they're like who the hell are you you're not our kid our kid is six years old go find your real family or we'll call the police
0: and at that point, she basically just gets pulled right back into limbo, just in her in her despair at the time. Yeah,
1: Ilyana can't go home, and she's never quite going to be able to.
0: And then the ghoul X-Men show up, they capture Ilyana, they bring her to Belasco, and he says, All right, you know what? I thought we could play nice. I thought you could basically be my apprentice and share power with me. But no, clearly that's not going to happen, so screw you.
1: And he uses the energy from Storm sacrifice to make the third bloodstone, which means three down and only two to go. Liana teleports back out, and she hides out in Storm's grove, trying to figure out how to tap into this power she's supposed to have, trying to figure out how to find the means to stand up to Blasco and get away.
0: And it's clear. I mean, the grove is nothing like it was before. It's this wintry hell. And she is here for literally years. She says she loses track of time, but she grows a head taller during the time she's here. and... And she
1: tries over and over again to make an acorn. She's drawing power from the last thing that's really left of Storm, which is that giant oak tree trying over and over and over again to make an acorn and over and over and over again failing.
0: It's that same black spatter of blood every time and it's it is freaking heartbreaking. This is all she has left. I mean this whole series like it's actually really emotionally rough to read this thing. I was surprised at just how invested I got while I was reading
1: it. Yeah it is just wrenching and she depletes the tree and as she does she reaches literally into herself and pulls out a sword.
0: Now, it's talking about things that are going to be a big deal going forward, you may have heard of the Soul Sword, and this is where it first shows up. This thing is going to be a huge artifact, both for Liana herself and for other people, for years and years to come.
1: In finding the Soul Sword, she's hit a balance the whole series has been leading up to. My sword is purest energy, quintessential magical power focused, unblemished, untainted through my soul. But for all that, it is still a weapon— It's Genesis's creation, its purpose, destruction. I'm much the same, shaped and tempered by two opposing forces, Aurora and Belasco. And
0: that's kind of the series in a nutshell, just in that statement right there.
1: And thus armed, she goes off to take on Belasco.
0: And boy, howdy, does she ever. She really kicks his ass. I mean, she's demolishing his his library and beating the hell out of him.
1: We also get one of the few kind of legitimately funny moments in an otherwise really dark series because she literally interrupts him in the middle of another comic storyline that he's embroiled in.
0: Right. Like, you know, since like, the, the Iliana thing isn't working out, he's got Kazar and Shanna the She-Devil and some other characters and their statues for some reason. And like, we the reader don't find out what's going yeah, on. Yeah, he's off
1: in Kesar 29 making a villain speech when she busts in.
0: And she's like, I don't care what's going on in Kazar 29. This is magic number four. This Way more important to me.
1: So they fight, and it becomes real clear, real fast, that Ilyana has the favor of the Elder Gods. She gets more powerful. Belasco basically reverts to human.
0: So Ilyana is getting to be uh, this sort of demonic red creature with horns and a tail. And so Belasco looks really awesome normally, but he starts to look super dorky as he gets more human. Like he's just this guy in, in, in a funny cape and little boots looking scared.
1: And Ilyana vanquishes him. And pushes down this dark child demon persona that's been rising up. And she teleports home.
0: But not before refusing to kill Belasco. He's like, I'll be back, I'll be back. And she's like, yeah, but I don't want to turn into you. Maybe it's going to be inevitable, but I don't want it to happen yet.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't she queen of limbo by right of arms?
0: It's not clear right now, but ultimately, yes, she will end up ruling limbo. And that, as one might imagine, has its ups and downs and mostly downs.
1: And so she comes back home to, again, that moment in X-Men 160, the moment after she disappeared, seven years older. Let's talk a little bit about the themes of the series, and especially if Ileana is a character, because, man, you were talking about forgetting how awesome this series was, and Magic has always been one of my, like, top three favorite X-Men characters.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: She's phenomenal, and one of the things I love most about her is that she doesn't have a redemption arc. She never will. At one point, she'll be sort of decorrupted and aged back to a kid, And then she'll die really soon after. She doesn't get that happy ending. Ileana is damned, irrevocably. Her story is not about salvation, and it never is going to be about salvation. And instead, it's about something that I think is a lot more interesting, which is how she navigates the rest of her life and tries to be a person even in the face of that knowledge.
0: Right. It's like she has this past tragedy, and she knows she has this future tragedy. And I think what the character's all about for me is hope in the face of that, is saying, hey, I know we're going to lose, but let's let's try to make the world a better place before we do. It's actually, it's a very reminiscent thematically of the TV show Angel, I think, in that regard.
1: There are X-Men who sort of are story and thematically flexible, and then there are X-Men who have really specific stories. So Wolverine's, again, is sort of about, you know, man versus beast, community versus solitude. This is Ilyana's story, and this is going to continue to be Ilyana's story. And in the present, as she currently is, this is very much Ilyana's story. She is going to be a major character in the New Mutants, then she's going to go away for a really long time, and she came back. She came back a few years ago, I think, and became actually for the first time in the character's history one of the actual X Men.
0: Yeah, she's currently one of uh, Cyclops's core team. I mean, it's basically Cyclops. Emma, Frost, and Ilyana right now. And at this point, Shadowcat
1: also. And she and Kitty are going to have one of the best friendships in comics. Speaking of awesome friendships between female characters, I have a lot of Shadowcat magic feelings, which I will discuss at length later.
0: Yeah, we are definitely not done with his character because, like Rachel said, she's going to be a major player in New Mutants for years and years and years, and I'm really excited we get to talk more about her.
1: For now, though... We're going to talk about your questions.
0: All right. What is question number one, Rachel? Well,
1: an Anon on Tumblr asks, do you guys have any handy hints or trusty tips for setting up a podcast?
0: Uh, Kind of. So we came into this not really knowing what the hell we were doing. So a lot of it was knowing awesome people and luck.
1: Like literally what we had going for us going into this, what we knew was a lot about X-Men and that we liked to talk about them.
0: Exactly. Um, but we've definitely discovered a few things, which if you wanted to start a podcast, uh, might be might be helpful information. So we recently had an uh, interview that Rachel did with our producer, Bobby Roberts, that we posted on our blog.
1: I guess that's my primary tip if you're going to set up a podcast, is find someone who knows what they're doing and ask them. We are lucky enough to live in a city and to have have friends who are really active, professional podcasters who not only know what they're doing, but know how to do it really well and are very generous with their time and expertise. But there's a lot of that you can find online. Again, um, I interviewed Bobby on our blog, and he talks a lot about equipment and process and sort of ways to go into it and make it work. I'll link back to that in the as mentioned for this episode.
0: But uh, really, production right there, whether you're doing it, whether somebody else is, having decent equipment so that you sound good and having uh, either yourself or somebody else editing just so that things can come off as more focused in the final product because we don't sound like this in the original cut. There's a lot of backtracking and ums and ahs.
1: We're not this smooth.
0: Uh, Just smooth. Are, are we smooth? I mean, We're smooth. Dracula's smooth. We Rah. learned that last time.
1: Dracula's so smooth, he's got theme music.
0: That's right. The other thing, of course, I mean, this might be a no-brainer, but you want something that you can talk about at length for a long time. Now, maybe it's not going to be as focused as this podcast, which is all about X-Men, but you need to basically be able to be engaged and enthusiastic all the time on your show.
1: This is something that, again, Bobby mentions as well. Making a living podcasting, doing it in any monetizable way, is really rare and kind of a toss up. And I mean, even for us, like this is about a third of my actual capital J job right now. Even for us, having it be something that we enjoy doing and enjoy talking about is is what lets us keep doing it. It's not going to make you rich. It's not going to be a quit your day job thing. So make sure it's something that you enjoy enough to sustain it.
0: Make sure it's something that you would do for free because you probably will be at least for a while. Something that's helped us a lot, we plan really extensively.
1: Yeah, we're both really, really, really neurotic type A about large public projects.
0: So what we do is we'll uh, basically take a lot of notes as we read through whatever issues are going to be relevant to a given episode. Then we get together and talk for a long time and create an outline, which is what we do episodes from. Having something to sort of stay on task and stay on topic with really, really helps it not be a super meandry podcast. And there certainly are some out there, and that works for some people but for us that's not what we wanted
1: and our goal with this is generally to keep episodes under an hour and again having an outline to work from helps a lot with that having an outline i think is is probably the most valuable tool in our arsenal because it keeps us on focus and it, it lets us sort of parse out the time a little better
0: and the last thing which is a much smaller thing Get yourself on iTunes. Make sure you're set up correctly for it. Ideally, something for people who don't use iTunes as well. Just make sure that the show is easy to get to and very organized and technically done correctly.
1: We use something called Blueberry. I guess it's probably pronounced blueberry, but it's missing some vowels. That's basically a podcast manager. That works really well for us.
0: Okay. So yeah, question number two. This is from Christopher Crawl on Twitter. Can you explain why Cyclops is from Alaska and Havoc is from Hawaii? Which I guess is kind of relevant because, you know, they were off doing hangout stuff with Space Pirate Dad this time.
1: I can. They are, in fact, both from Alaska, but after their parents were killed, Alex was adopted by a nice couple in Hawaii, and Scott grew up in an orphanage in Nebraska. Scott goes back to Alaska more. It's never really explored why, but there are a couple reasons that could make sense, the first of which is he's lived there for longer. He was older when their parents died, so presumably has more connection. They've still got grandparents there who are effectively his only family. I don't know if Alex is still in touch with his adopted family. Um, They're presumably still in Hawaii. He doesn't have the happiest childhood, but, like... They were at least basically okay people. So presumably they're still around. But yeah, that's why Alex grew up in Hawaii.
0: Okay, well I think that's all the time we have for today, this magical, magical day.
1: Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Bobby Roberts, who's also the co-host of the awesome Welcome to That Whole Thing, which you can check out online at welcometothatwholething.com
0: Check out our website at rachelandmiles.com. We have visual companion posts for every episode. Uh, those go up on Sundays, so if you're listening from Comics Alliance, check back then. Uh, articles, fan art, and all sorts of glorious, glorious nonsense.
1: If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to check out our Patreon. You can find a link from rachelandmiles.com. And I want to mention also that we mentioned outlines, and there are levels of the Patreon where you get access to a backstage blog that actually just gives you direct access to episode outlines. And also rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher.
0: New episodes air at ComicsAlliance.com every Thursday and at RachelAndMiles.com, iTunes, and Stitcher on Sundays.
1: Next time, we're headed back to space for the Brood Saga.
0: And in space, no one can hear you snicked.